Welcome to a Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Ashkan Kazarian. On today's show, we're going to talk about the principles that should lead us as we talk about the tech policy. Joining me, I have Jesse Blumenfall, Vice President for Tech and Innovation at Stand Together, which you also may know as Hoke Network. Um, Jesse, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you guys released these principles on January 27th. Uh, for a lot of people, it was a little unexpected. No one really knew why would Coke Network, that obviously is engaged in policy, however, would come out with their own principles. What was the goal behind this? Sure. So as we think about the most pressing issues that society faces, whether it's questions of free speech or criminal justice or immigration or trade, or in this case, tech and innovation, we think that each of the key institutions in society needs to play their productive and appropriate role. And so, you know, while groups like Americans for Prosperity within our community clearly and consistently talk about the proper role of government, government's just one of what we look at as the four key institutions in society, the others being communities, education, and business. And so these principles for continued American tech leadership are really an, att- uh, an attempt on our end to try and articulate what does it mean for business to do the right thing? You know, it's, it's undisputed that the U.S. is the global tech leader, and we didn't get there by accident. We got there through uh, really what I would say is three key factors. One is a culture that's welcoming of dynamism and experimentation and allowing people to go out, be entrepreneurial, and try something new. The second is a series of policy choices, the role of government here, um, to allow the conditions for experimentation and remove barriers that stand in people's way. And the third is principled business leadership, right? When uh, leaders respect free speech, um, when uh, business leaders um, embrace emerging technologies and allow for and don't lobby against uh, an environment of uh, experimentation, when they act in a principled long-term manner, that allows the U.S. business community to uh, become and hopefully remain the global tech leader. You in the principles provided a very helpful hit list for c- crucial tech policy questions for 2020. Let's start with, um, actually, I'm going to name all of them, free speech and association, emerging technology, data use and privacy, regulatory threats, and government surveillance. Let's start with free speech and association. What are the leading forces that you believe in when it comes to that area? Sure. So the way we've tried to articulate each of these principles is to make a value statement, right? To, to make clear where we think we're coming from and where what what is the underlying value that has driven American success. And then try to be clear about what we think the role of business is to play. So, so free everyone speech- can look at the so people can look at the principles and say oh i wonder what stand together thinks about x proposal and then based off this list they can just deduct on where you guys stand and how you would evaluate and also i'm guessing it would help within the big network that you have for people to know at all times what are the kind of paths you would take. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. You know, uh, you, like I, have been in a number of conversations, both in public and private, with uh, folks in the business community where they want to know, what does it look like for us to do the right thing, right? They're, they're wrestling with a product decision. They're wrestling with a policy choice internal to their company. And 
what we've tried to do is in hopefully pretty clear language, just in one page, articulate what we think it means to do the right thing. Right. So in free speech and association, yeah, we start from the presumption that free speech is good. It's necessary and essential in a liberal democracy. Um, speech is good and more speech is better. Uh, but private companies have a role to play there. So we recognize that private companies are free to set their own rules that are appropriate for their services and for their consumers. Uh, we think they ought to resist efforts by governments uh, to limit lawful speech or to effectively launder government power, right? That's where a politician or a regulator couldn't do something directly, particularly in the United States, because it undermines uh, or violates the First Amendment. Uh, so they try to get a business to do it instead. Um, uh, the third is that they th ought to be skeptical of outside interests that lobby them to limit expression. And the fourth is, you know, especially as they're creating rules within their services, they should strive to create clear, understandable and accessible rules that are enforced in an equitable and transparent manner. So I'm happy to give you a concrete example of that, if that'd be helpful. Right. So let's think about um, the government attempts to limit lawful speech. Um, and, you know, there was a there's been a lot of conversation about attempts to regulate and limit political expression online, whether it's paid or organic. Um, and you had this really peculiar instance where a Democratic FEC commissioner, Ellen Weintraub, uh, took to Twitter to ask the CEO of Facebook to implement her proposal to ban certain types of political ads because she didn't like the degree of targeting that was available. Now, now just take a step back and think about that, right? You have a federal regulator who is charged with setting policies and uh, regulations that apply to elections, um, lobbying a private executive to do something that had the FEC done it directly, surely would have raised meaningful First Amendment concerns. Um, and and the reason that's so problematic is twofold. One is, as a policy matter, I think it's a bad decision. And I'm happy to go into why um, proposals to limit political speech are, are problematic and deeply offensive, and we ought to all resist them. But two, there's this sort of process question, and that's really what I wanted to get at and what we wanted to get at here with these principles. Right. The idea that you have a public official lobbying private business leaders to do what they couldn't directly do through their public uh capacity bypasses due process constraints, bypasses First Amendment concerns, right? The normal ways in which you or I or any other concerned citizen might engage in this, right? By showing up to public meetings, by um, looking at whether the uh, APA was properly followed, by filing comments in the record, like the, the normal mechanisms of due process that exist um, are totally bypassed when you have government officials just quietly pulling a public official. Uh, private official aside and saying, hey, I can't really do this, but you should. Do you think it has something to do with TechLash, the fact that Twitter's and partially Google's of the world have succumbed to this pressure? Um, do you think it's the general kind of conversation around tech and public opinion that has been more negative that's pressuring the companies to do things that obviously are not due process regulation in any way? So I don't think it's particular to tech, and I don't think it's particular to this moment in time. I think what we, you and I tend to focus on it because it's it's often driving the news of the day. Um, but at a deeper level, the the concern that 
I just articulated is what happens when you have businesses focused on winning favors from government and government officials trying to curry favor with private industry leaders instead of businesses going out into the marketplace, trying different approaches and seeing what works for consumers. Right. The the pernicious effect that happens when you ha- incentivize business leaders to turn to government to solve their problems and government leaders to rely on uh, businesses as an expeditious path to achieving policy is that you create this cycle of cronyism um, that that becomes deeply destructive. Right. Businesses seek special favors and government officials are are keen to grant or withhold them Um in, in a way that favors incumbents over new entrants, in a way that favors big businesses over small businesses, in a way that favors the powerful and well-connected over those who might be new to the scene and, and creates a deeply unfair playing field. Obviously, we don't like making predictions here anymore because they never work out. Um, but there are so many threats to free speech that are coming from the pressure from politicians, both in legislative and executive branch. Would you give us a prediction on are any of these threats viable? Would any of them follow through? Aside from already the chilling effects that we are seeing right now. Yeah. So um, there's a peculiar situation playing out, particularly in tech policy debates, but in free speech debates more broadly in the United States, where there has never been a country that had a stronger set of legal protections for speech in the history of mankind, right? If you think about what happened with um, uh, seditious speech in the early part of this country's history, um, where there were attempts by Congress to ban seditious speech, sedi- speech that's banned in Western liberal democracies around the world. And under our First Amendment, uh, the the courts and ultimately Congress has backed away from those types of attempts to chill speech. If you look at the protections uh, for speech, whether it's online or offline, the First Amendment and American free speech law more broadly provides some of the strongest protections, I'll, I'll just say it outright, the strongest protections of any country in the history of mankind, right? So why are you and I so gloomy? Um, we're gloomy because the cultural respect for that, the cultural embrace of free expression, the willingness to uh, to live with people with whom we disagree and resolve our differences uh, without resorting to, to violence or force, um, that cultural respect is what's at threat. And so it manifests in these policy debates we have. And you and I can go into details on whether it's Section 230 or anti-slap laws or any of the, the sort of policy areas where this pops up. But the, the, the deeper challenge that we face as a country is that we've got a legal regime that respects free speech more than any country in the history of the world. Um, and we've got a culture that's increasingly hostile to it. I'll give you a, a really concrete example, right? Um, there are politicians today in Spain who have been arrested and jailed because they represent a region that would like to break away, right? And the Spanish government has uh, banned them from office, arrested them, and charged them for for their speech. Now, you can look at the uh, efforts of uh, folks who represent the Basque region, and you can say that's right or that's wrong. Um, but the, the, the sh- pure articulation of that idea and, and the idea that um, – politicians would be 
uh, thrown in prison for expressing controversial ideas is is largely unthinkable in an American context or, or contrast it with British libel law. Right. In the UK, you have a longstanding tradition where because the the potential penalties are so great and because the various formal and informal institutions that regulate speech are so powerful, you have a tradition of pre-publication censorship among the British press, right? The idea that um, outside of, you know, exceedingly rare national security contexts in the United States, that a government agency or regulatory body, that the FCC would go to the Washington Post and say, you can't print this, um, is just unthinkable the American context and happens somewhat regularly in the UK. Um, so I don't think it's our laws that are the problem. I think it the the problem is is us. Yeah, that makes sense. As a European, I can definitely say that Europeans are way more sensitive than Americans. And unfortunately, in 2020, I'm seeing that Americans are becoming way too sensitive to a point where they're sometimes open to limiting their own free speech rights. Um, on that note, let's move on to something that's also culturally very differently approached by Europeans and Americans, and that is privacy and data use. Um, tell us a little bit more about you have great privacy experts on your team and how did they approach this huge issue? Yeah. So um, in particular, uh, my colleague, Neil Chilson, um, who was the uh, acting chief technologist at the Federal Trade Commission and an attorney advisor to the uh, commissioner and acting chairwoman there. Um, Neil's written a, a really simple uh, eight-page white paper uh, for the Federalist Society's Regulatory Transparency Project called When Considering Federal Privacy Legislation. And the reason I like that um, paper is that Neil starts it at really a the most basic and accessible questions before launching into what can sometimes be a, a complicated and nuanced topic, right? So what do we mean by privacy? What we mean by privacy is generally um, that information about person A can be observed by party B, um, right? So that A can observe B. Um, and so there, there are two meaningful limitations on that. Um, one is a limitation on what is ob observable. And the second is a limitation on um, how can that information be used. And it, it, at its simplest, that's what privacy is, right? A uh, is observed by B and uh, what can be observed and what uh, can be done with that information, right? And you can think about the ways in which those factors interact, right? So technology certainly changes some things, right? Uh, when you have uh, the ability to, at your fingertips, access basically all of human knowledge um, in in a relatively frictionless and relatively cost-effective, if not free, manner, um, the amount of information that is observable really goes up. Um, and in the meantime, the U.S. has taken um, what I think is a historically a really thoughtful approach to regulating privacy. That is to say there, there's a baseline privacy enforcement, right, uh, that the Federal Trade Commission does um, based on uh, looking for unfair and deceptive trade practices. And then we look at the areas where there's unique risk. Think of health information, uh, financial information, information about children, um, or information about credit scores. And in each of those categories, there are, there are detailed limitations. Right. So as we take a step back and think about, okay, so what's the role of the business community there? Um, 
we know that Americans and American businesses um, uh, both greatly benefit from the use of data and also want the companies that use data to be trustworthy. And so as a result, we think that private companies should be responsible stewards of the data they collect, use, store, and share. We think they should provide clear and understandable and accessible data use policies because that helps build consumer trust. And we think that they should be upfront with users and the public at large when problems inevitably occur. Uh, because you know, perfection just isn't a realistic option um, in a, a even when people are are meaningfully acting in the best interest, right? And so you can start having detailed discussions about, well, what about genetic testing or facial recognition or social media information? And we can go into any of those areas. But I think at a principled level, um, the, the ideas of consumer trust and the ideas of responsible stewardship ought to undergird every business. And, and the way in which we've tried to approach these policies writ large is to try and write them in a way that is industry agnostic and business model agnostic um, so that no matter where where, where in a st- the stack a company falls and no matter uh, the types of business they engage in, um, this is a, a general purpose set of principles that can help guide their work. The voices on the other side often say that you can't really put that in the hands of a companies and let them hold themselves accountable. And they paint the, these companies all with a general brush of evil and greedy in collecting data on data on data. There is definitely some truth to the fact that no matter what kind of area or industry you regulate, there will always be bad actors. How would these principles address those bad actors? Right. So this is an articulation of what it means to be a good actor in that space. Um, But we've been really clear that we think there's a role for government here, right? So Americans for Prosperity, a part of the Stand Together community, um, has endorsed federal privacy legislation. And we've put forth five principles that we think need to be in any federal privacy bill um, to allow it to protect Americans from harm while still allowing for dynamism and innovation to occur in the marketplace. Right. I think it's both possible to protect American consumers and to not uh, destroy what has made the U.S. the undisputed leader in the commercial Internet. Um, and, you know, there are, uh, whether it's sector-specific regulators in the high-risk areas or general-purpose regulators like the FTC and state's uh, attorneys general, um, there are cops on the beat to police against unfair and deceptive business practices. You just said the word regulators quite a few times, so I'm just going to segue very, very smoothly into regulatory threats segment of your principles. Um, Let us uh, know, so how is this different from kind of, we talked about free speech and data and those focus on regulation on those issues, and then you have a very broad regulatory threat, so anything that ever touches telecom and innovation and technology, right? So how, how does that play a part in this system of principles? Sure. So I think what you see in the regulatory threat section and you see throughout the document is we've tried to articulate not just businesses' relationships with each other or businesses' relationships with government or businesses' relationships with their consumers or the public at large, but all of those at the same time. And so the way we think about this is that um, businesses have a role to play in articulating uh, where there are burdensome policies that keep Americans from realizing the the promise of innovation. 
We think that businesses should be advocates for a regulatory environment that encourages dynamism, right? And that that sounds easy, but it, it can be very difficult, right? If you are a, a business, particularly a large incumbent business, you have a real incentive to make the law as complex and burdensome as possible, because uh, if you uh, if you uh, run into those challenges, you can hire lawyers and accountants and throw engineering hours at problems. You've seen this in Europe with their approach to privacy regulation and GDPR. You know, just in the short while that GDPR has been in effect, there's been a number of studies of the impact on the market for advertising data, and it's found that the two largest companies in that market, Google and Facebook, have increasing market share, and all of the small companies face real barriers to competition. Right. It, it, it is not surprising that big businesses favor regulation. It tends to be a way that they harm competitors. And that brings me to the, the third piece of our regulatory front threats work. So not only should they be advocates for um, uh, recognizing these burdensome policies, not only should they um, – uh, want uh, an environment of dynamism, um, but they shouldn't encourage regulation or other government actions that hinder competi- uh, com- competitors or gain competitive advantage. Right. So we've seen this play out both in the privacy debate, but also in the antitrust debate. There are a whole lot of companies, uh, Yelp and Oracle in particular, come to mind as firms who have been very vocal in wanting to politicize antitrust enforcement. The biggest, bluntest tool that the government has in the economy, the tool to break up firms or to uh, deny or even unwind mergers. And it uh, is so obvious. Sorry for interrupting. Yeah, yeah. No, not at all. I mean, Yelp and Oracles, they have a very clear competitor that they, I mean, they still have a pretty significant market share, but they're just not at that level. Mm-hmm. And so they're using these antitrust rules or other regulatory frameworks to just go after their competitors because they can't win in the market itself. And this is what we we started talking at the beginning of this conversation about, right? This is cronyism at its worst, right? It is businesses seeking special favors from government. It's them trying to use government to harm their uh, competitors as opposed to competing in a marketplace. These regulatory principles would also affect um, areas that are kind of tech adjacent, like telecom. How would it play out there? Absolutely, right. So this set of principles isn't just for the um, B two C companies that folks interact with when they're surfing the web. Um, it's about folks uh, and businesses throughout uh, the tech and tech adjacent sectors, right? So think about. Um, an example, the Title II debate that I know Tech Freedom has been a very vocal voice in and you all have, I'm sure, talked about at, at some length. Um, you had companies like Google and Facebook and Netflix and others um, who wanted to gain negotiating advantage over their competitors. And they spun up speculative and in most cases non-existent harms um, to impose 1930s-style utility regulator regulation on their competitors. Right, That was wrong. Uh, the FCC was right to restore a light-touch approach, and Congress should step in and end this back and forth. And if a historian will look back at our times and the way that digital regulation was developing, I think that moment in time was when technology world kind of separated into two camps that made the second camp vulnerable. And I don't think those 
platforms and companies thought they're going to be as vulnerable because they were the darlings of Capitol Hill. And now look at them. The backlash happened. They're basically the new evil. It is very hard to operate and protect innovation when public's perception of them changed so much. But I think it can sometimes be tracked back to that exact moment where they went left and someone went right. Like, you know, they separated at a crossroads. Um, Okay, so let's talk about the future in a way. Let's talk about emerging technology. Uh, Emerging technology is obviously a huge umbrella of issues that covers AI, driverless cars, IoT, all this. Uh, You and I before at State of the Net 2020 talking on different panels, and it was fascinating to me how no matter what was the topic of a panel, if it was an emerging technology topic, it covered other panels too. So mm-hmm. IoT was talking about AI, AI was talking about facial recognition. So it was all kind of cross-contaminated in a way. Uh, what is the approach that Send Together takes to emerging technology and how to regulate it? Yeah, so at a high level, we don't know where technology is headed, and that's a good thing, right? Um, you know, you just listed a whole host of technologies, and uh, I'm sure there are others that five years, ten years, twenty years from now, um, we haven't even conceived of that'll be rife with public policy challenges for us to grapple with. So what we need then is a framework that applies irrespective of what particular technology presents itself. Um, we think that companies ought to favor a permissionless approach, um, one that where that default answer from government to can I try something new is yes, as opposed to the default answer being no, you need to go and ask for permission. Um, Why? Because that encourages experimentation um, and it also challenges incumbents to up their game. Yeah, we think that uh, companies should constantly seek new ways to create value for their customers with while recognizing that they can't pred- predict the future, right? So we were talking before about political ads, and you know I've been very outspoken, and we've been very outspoken, that we think that Twitter's approach to political ads is wrong and misguided because it limit, seeks to limit speech and gives in to a lot of those outside lobbying forces. The flip side of that is, I think, on the emerging side, uh, Jack Dorsey's been deeply thoughtful uh, about recognizing that there's probably opportunities to experiment with the existing social media business model. And he's spotlighted uh, some research um, by Mike Masnick and others and uh, announced a plan to devote significant engineering resources to experimenting with what would it look like for Twitter and social media more broadly to operate like a, a client, right? In a similar way that your Outlook or your Gmail can operate as an email client, what would it look like to have different clients to serve social media use that would allow users to customize their experiences and pick what what rules and what interactions they would have? Um, and we think that uh, we shouldn't be complacent about this. The businesses should pursue beneficial advances in emerging technologies and respond quickly um, to harms that do develop. Right? Yeah. This isn't, and we don't advocate a, yeah purely laissez-faire approach, right? I think oftentimes folks, particularly in the classical liberal tradition or libertarians, um, get mischaracterized as saying, you know, just leave it to business market selves, 
We think it's important, by contrast, that there are uh, baseline rules and laws, uh, laws against fraud, norms around how you interact with customers, behaviors by business that promote consumer trust. Um, but we want the those default rules to be in place to protect against harms where they emerge so that you don't have particularized and often antiquated regulatory regimes that stifle innovation in whole sector, sectors. It is fascinating to me, but terrifying in a way how easily people are ready to regulate the future they don't even understand or they don't even know is coming. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, that, so those are really great principles to keep in mind, I, I would say. And now we can move on to my definitely favorite topic um, and favorite not because I think it's great, but just because I love working on it and it's government surveillance and government surveillance reform. I personally am very grateful that a big organization like yours is engaged on this. And before we dive into the principles, I would ask you, so it makes sense that you guys are interested in regulatory threats and in privacy and even free speech online. It's all part of kind of the digital business world. Why would you want to get into such a sometimes ugly fight that is between national security and government and civil liberties advocates. But it hasn't doesn't have to be two camps, but unfortunately is. So I think you're right to say they don't have to be two camps. In fact, we don't think these are uh, values that are in conflict. We think it's totally consistent for Americans to want to be secure, um, for our intelligence community to be able to do the work they need to do, um, for uh, others in law enforcement to do the work they need to do while still protecting uh, the civil liberties of Americans. Um, and so, you know, one of the pernicious consequences of government and business getting into bed together is that those due process protections that we talked about before in the free speech context uh, get undermined in the civil liberties context more broadly, right? So we think that um, the the key area to focus on here really is due process and, and uh, at what time is it appropriate um, for um, businesses to answer law enforcement requests or to turn over information about users. You now, we think that companies have an obligation to protect users from unwarranted government surveillance. That's not all government requests, it's unwarranted government surveillance. And unwarranted is doing a lot of work in that phrase. There's um, meaningful due process protections that come from having to go to a judge or get other similar legal process uh, that satisfies uh, comparable requirements that that protects Americans um, in that context. Uh, we think that you know companies should comply with law enforcement requests when they have meaningful due process. We think that companies should be transparent with the public about access being granted to governments. And we think that they should resist calls, um, particularly those that are heating up right now, to create so-called backdoors and encryption because it, it undermines all of our security. And you know, I, I feel like I feel like especially on this one, I, I'm probably preaching to the choir because this is a policy area where you work uh, um, much more day to day than I do. You definitely are preaching to the choir. And I think it also is important and kind of ties back to answer my own question into the business model too, because these companies 
obviously have values like Apple, let's say, and the fight they're leading on um, keeping end-to-end encryption. But also they acknowledge both Apple and Facebooks and everyone who does use end-to-end encryption in their tools. They say, listen, this is how we also get our customers. Our consumers, they want this tool. And so if we don't have it, that's going to affect our business. On top of that, our values think we should protect your rights. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a very honest uh, one-two punch in a way. But okay, this is not only you know some high-level values and just kind of pumping your chest and saying I'm the good guy, but it's also just a question of money. And if they're not going to use us, they're just going to go use some other tool or someone else who might be even based in another country that can provide them what we can't anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, on that note, uh, I want to kind of go back to the high level of these principles and wrap up by asking you, what do you see would be the perfect best use um, that a general public and policymakers can have when they look at these principles? Yeah, that, that really comes to why we developed them in the first place. You know, Americans for Prosperity spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill or in the 35 states in which we operate talking with lawmakers and legislators about the particular tech policy issues that that we work on. Um, And pretty frequently, we'll get to the end of a discussion and a staffer or a legislator will say, okay, you know, I, I, I understand, maybe they agree, maybe they don't, but they understand what AFP wants them to do as a policymaker. And their question is, well, what do you want Google to do or Facebook to do or AT&T or Verizon? What do you want these companies to do? And I think uh, for the policymaker audience, we've tried to lay out, here's what we think good looks like and that we're willing to call balls and strikes when companies either do well, we want to praise them, or when they do poorly on these margins, we're going to be critical. For folks in the private sector, we think that uh, this is an opportunity to uh, have a clear articulation of what it means for business to do the right thing, right? We know that business can be a force for good in society. Um, and throughout time, throughout history, business has been a meaningful force for good, um, but but only when acting in a principled way. And that means taking a long-term value uh, when thinking about the business decisions that you're making and operating in a principled manner. And so what we've tried to do is, is to articulate a better way for what it means to do the right thing. And then to the point you were just making about Apple, which I think is totally right, Um, privacy isn't an abstract notion. Privacy from unwarranted government surveillance has become a key differentiator for them in the marketplace. And I think they're not unique in that regard. I think the comments that Mark Zuckerberg made at Georgetown University and talking about free expression were commendable. I think there are a number of businesses that have taken principled approaches. I think of the comments just this week from Pinterest about thinking about the impact of changes to something like Section 230, not just on the two or three largest companies, but on a small or medium-sized business like Pinterest that that serves a meaningful and large uh, customer base with a product that by and large is loved, um, but quite simply doesn't have the comparable resources to the largest handful of companies to compete. So we think that uh, these principles ought to be something that that ought to bring people together irrespective of their ideological persuasion. And uh, I think you've made a pretty compelling case why this is uh, this is something that consumers value in the market. 
all of the previous reincarnations of Stand Together have been very consistent, <laughs> uh, have been very consistent on technology. And I think you guys have really carved a niche out for yourself in the debate. And um, on a personal note, we at Tech Freedom are very grateful for you guys creating a meaningful place for others to come together and have this discussion and educate even those who don't want to be educated on these issues. So on that note, we're going to link to the principles. Please plug in anything else you want our listeners to look into uh, to learn more about your work. Yeah, no, uh, I I think the reason we've put these out there is because, not just because we're going to be talking about them this week when they launch, but because this is a conversation that needs to happen over the next weeks and months. And so, you know, I've taken a pretty clear position that we're willing to talk to anyone, anywhere, anytime about what we believe and why. Um, that while, you know, we certainly new infor- learn new information and adjust as we do, our, our values don't change over time just because the politics of the moment might. And so, you know, I'm happy to continue the conversation. You know, folks are free to uh, message me on Twitter. I'm at Jesse K. Bloom um, or uh, get in touch in some other way. And we're happy to keep the conversation going. Well, thank you so much. And I hope we'll have you back on the show more to kind of tackle these very difficult and complicated issues in a very nice Canadian <laughs> and also kind of knowledgeable manner. And also American. Uh, right, yeah, yes, he's dual citizen. But thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Please leave us a review so others can find the show uh, and you can subscribe anywhere you listen to your podcast. Have a good one. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.